come to the preaching of the Word, uh, we turn to uh, two passages of Scripture, Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2, and then over to the book of Romans in the New Testament, uh, verses 1, uh, chapter 1, rather, verses 16 through 23. <clears throat> Firstly, starting in Genesis chapter 17, just verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then over to Romans chapter 1. To Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament now. Starting in verse 16, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and reptiles. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the reading of the word, and we pray that you would be with your servant as he preaches, and us as uh, we attend to your word, that we might be pricked to our consciences to live as according to our calling and our hope and trust in the Savior, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, have you ever asked the question to yourself, just who is in charge here? Uh, who's running the show? around here? Uh, who's actually directing traffic around these, uh, these parts? Who is it that's in charge here? Uh, very often you'll get the sense when you perhaps look at uh, media, uh, perhaps even speak to uh, even well-meaning Christians, uh, is it the devil? Is, is the devil the one in charge here? Is he the one uh, running around directing traffic? I mean, First John 5 verse 19 uh, seems to kind of trend in that direction. It says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 calls the devil the god of this world, and his aim is to blind the minds of unbelievers from recognizing the gospel. Uh, Ephesians 2 ominously refers to the devil uh, as the prince of the power of the air. Uh, is it the devil? Can we say that at the same time that he is the one who is ultimately in charge here? Is he the one who is ultimately on the throne? Uh, you get the sense in uh, modern times that, uh, that a lot of people will, will figure, no, it's not the, the devil, it's actually us. Uh, we're the ones in charge here. Well, are we? Are we really? 
I mean, think of everything that, uh, that we've done. Think of all the strides in the human endeavor. Think of all the advances in technology, all of the advances uh, in the medical profession, uh, all of the advances of our philosophies, our abilities even in the scientific arena to reorganize the elements of nature itself and use them to our own advantage. All of our weapons and our abilities to defend ourselves at home and abroad. It's a very elaborate uh, kind of scheme of weaponry that we have in order to defend ourselves and even offend others at home and abroad. But really, when we take inventory again, you think we're the ones in charge here. I mean, for all of our advances in technology, for all of our advances in philosophy, for all of our our advances in every uh, area of human endeavor, look at what is above us right now. A roof is above us. You know why it's there? Because we are not more powerful than the elements of nature. Left to ourselves, we have hiking uh, trails all around us. Left to ourselves, we will die in the elements of nature. So I ask the question, is it really us who is in charge here? Because let's face the facts. For all of our advances in technology, nature will always win in the end. But we know that when we read our Bibles and when we live in this world, that God is above us. Uh, He's the one who's ultimately directing traffic around these parts. He's the one who's ultimately in control. Uh, Even nature belongs to him. The very thing that can post-fall kill us. Uh, Even nature belongs to him. Even the devil belongs to him. God is the owner of everything. And I think that every single Christian, uh, no matter what uh, denomination they come from, no matter what church they go to, uh, every Christian should be able to link up arms and kind of high-five each other uh, over this one basic fact. If, if any Christian church uh, across America, across the entire world, uh, should look at each other, uh, not even bat an eye, and confess with one another that God is supreme. God is the one who is supreme. I've done a sermon series at Falls Church where I come from, uh, where I'm ministering at right now, Uh, in the attributes of God. And it was a very, very small sermon series. Um, And there we've looked at uh, a number of what are called communicable attributes and a number of incommunicable attributes. That is, uh, incommunicable attributes. There are ways in which God is described, uh, right, that he has allowed us to know about himself that is not the way that we would be described. That is what an incommunicable attribute is. God is described in certain ways that, uh, that don't have an overflow upon how we are described in that category. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the incommunicable attribute of God's omnipotence. God's omnipotence. This is what this sermon will be uh, dedicated to this, uh, this morning on the omnipotence of God. And we're going to be following this basic theme. If you're uh, privy to writing notes, this is the time to write the sermon theme uh, out in your, your bulletin saying because God is omnipotent, we can have confidence that he can accomplish all of his will for us, for our good, and for his glory. Because God is omnipotent, we can have confidence that he can accomplish all of his will for our good and for his glory. 
And we're going to be answering three basic questions uh, throughout this entire sermon. Number one, uh, what is God's omnipotence? What is God's omnipotence? Number two, where is God's omnipotence directed? Where is God's omnipotence directed? And number three, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? For, firstly, beginning with the uh, first question in the sermon, uh, what is God's omnipotence? Well, I'll, I'll have you uh, take a look at that word in your bulletin. I have the uh, word omnipotence printed out in your very bulletin. If you take a look at that, uh, that word in the bulletin, the omnipotence of God, you'll notice uh, that the word omni is there. Uh, it's a Latin word that uh, literally means all or the whole of. And secondly, if you take a look at that word, you'll see the word potence is there. This also is a Latin uh, word, which we get our, uh, our word in English, or we get uh, our, our, our words potential from, uh, potency, uh, potentate, and so on. Uh, it's a Latin word that means power. So when we say that, God's, uh, that God has the incommunicable attribute of omnipotence, we say that God has all power. He has all power, all ability, all capacity. It's one of those attributes, uh, to show you how universal this is, it's one of those attributes of God that's assumed by every single author of the Bible. Every single time that God is ever mentioned in the Bible, you can safely assume that the author is understanding who God is upon the backdrop of his omnipotence, of his being omnipotent. But our problem nowadays in uh, 21st century modern theology doesn't really care for the omnipotence of God all that much. Modern theology uh, prefers God to be, well, let's just say everything but all-powerful. They want God to be less than all-powerful. Why? Because then that makes God a little bit more relatable. We can relate a little bit more better to, to, to God if he is not omnipotent. And, you know, they're right. They're 100% true. He is relatable uh, that way, and that's the reason why the God of modern theology doesn't exist. Uh, he's so relatable that he ends up becoming practically like us. One theologian says it uh, this way in his train of thought that says that God cannot control the outcome of events, and so... What does he do? He seeks to persuade people to do his will. You know, his, uh, his, his persuasive ability is what kind of gets you through uh, the history of the Bible. His persuasive ability uh, to, to kind of get people on his side and, and stuff like that is really what kind of carries water in terms of history. Whatever we can say about that, uh, we can say that that does not describe the God of the Bible uh, at all. Psalm 29 verse 10 the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 97 verse 5 says that the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Now say what you want about, uh, about that. It doesn't sound like God uses his powers of persuasion and asks the mountains very nicely and persuasively to melt like wax. That's not the God that, uh, that, that, we, wor that we worship Modern theology, the way that we naturally trend outside of the Bible's norms, <clears throat> the way that our hearts are, are normally geared towards, people love a God that is relatable, that is safe, that's tame. Charles Spurgeon once said that there's really nothing more earnestly to contend for than God's kingship over all creation, but that no doctrine is more hated. Men will allow God to be everywhere, 
except on his throne. God is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. He has all power. And this can be understood in a couple of different ways, two different ways. Firstly, it can be understood properly. God's omnipotence can be understood properly or absolutely. That God's omnipotence means that he has all power to himself. His power is self-generated. He needs nothing in order to get it. He needs nothing in order to have it. He needs nothing in order to keep it. His power is entirely of his own self. He never had to work in order to attain it. His power is infinite. It's infinite both in terms of range, and his power is infinite in terms of its endurance. He has, in other words, infinite power, and he, he will have that infinite power into all eternity. He will have infinite power infinitely. His power has always been his from all eternity, and his power is something that he will always have into all eternity. His power is unchanging. His power is unchanging. It never increases over time. It never diminishes over time. Uh, Paul speaks here in Romans chapter 1 of uh, men uh, giving glory, rendering glory, where they should render it to the true triune God of the Bible. They render it over to birds, animals, reptiles, even uh, if you want to uh, say, say it this, uh, this, this way, uh, in terms of resembling mortal men. Uh, he, his, his, his going idea here in the time is that some of these gods, the older they get, the more powerful they become. That's not the God of the Bible. God's power is unchangeably infinite. He never gets tired. God never gets tired. Nor does he ever get a surge of energy that he didn't have uh, before. All that he ever does takes just as much energy and just as much effort as anything else that he does from creating the entire universe by the word of his power to, to answering your prayers in order to keep your marriage together. Everything that he has ever done takes as much effort as anything else that he has ever done. Nothing is more tiring for him than anything else, nor does anything impact his energy level that he does or anything less than he does. His power never increases. His power never diminishes. He has all power to himself. We can also understand his omnipotence uh, functionally as well. So we looked at it absolutely, that he has all power unto himself, self-generating. We can also understand his omnipotence uh, functionally as he, as he works, is to say this more precisely, that God's omnipotence is his unlimited power to do whatever he wants to do. This is because of this reason why we can say that when we categorize the attributes of God, we can say that God's omnipotence is founded upon his omniscience. His power is founded upon his knowledge. And this is exactly what the Bible talks about. God's doing is grounded upon his willing. Psalm 15, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Daniel 4, verse 35, he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. His actions or his doing is founded upon his knowing. God's omnipotence also corresponds to his other attributes such that he can never do anything that is contrary to them. That is to say that his omnipotence, his power is most good. His power is most holy. His power is most loving. His power is most blessed. His power accords with his full and perfect knowledge of everything. His omnipotence, his, 
his unlimited power to do whatever he wills. So this is what his omnipotence is. God's omnipotence is absolute. He has all power to himself. And it's also functional that he's able then to do whatever he wants to do, whatever he wills. That's what God's omnipotence is. And so we move on to our second question on where God's omnipotence is directed. Where is his power directed? And just as uh, we started with the first answer to the first question, uh, so too I'll uh, attribute this to the very second question. Where is God's omnipotence directed? Well, firstly, with God himself. With God himself. God's omnipotence, firstly, is directed towards himself, internally towards himself. That is to say, God's omnipotence is commensurate with himself. He'll never go against himself. He will never go against himself. Atheists and non-Christians alike have posed uh, what's called the omnipotence dilemma. You might have heard this, the omnipotence uh, dilemma. Uh, they'll say a question like this, is God able, then, if he's able to do everything, which actually is not what I said, uh, listen to it very closely, God's omnipotence classically defined, I'm not out, out of the um, in left field on this, uh, this definition, God's omnipotence is his ability to do, to do everything that he wants, all of his holy will. That's in the children's catechism, by the way. Uh, you know, can God do all things? Yes, God can do what? His holy will. Uh, but atheists and non-Christians alike, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll front this, uh, this dilemma that's called the omnipotence dilemma. Can God make one plus one equal three? Uh, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? I'll tell you what to do uh, when you encounter this or perhaps the person in the mirror asks you that very question. I want you to say this, okay? Whatever your response is must be uh, introduced in these words, nothing but love for you, okay? So that's a very important thing. If you say nothing but love for you, it's like the Southerner is saying, bless your heart, okay? Y'all know what I mean by that. You know, bless your heart. You could say anything that you want afterwards, but just put your hand on their shoulder and say, my friend, nothing but love for you, okay? That's a dumb question. You see, it doesn't sound as bad now when you say nothing but love for you. Just say nothing but love for you, my friend. That's a dumb question. It, it, it's, it's really dumb, especially when you're trying to catch an omniscient God in a logical dilemma. By the way, omniscience, God has all knowledge. He has everything that can be considered knowledge. You are tempting him, you are testing him to a logical inconsistency. You are testing one with omniscience, as to the charge of being logically inconsistent with himself, that's bad starting point. But firstly, that's not what omnipotence is at all. Omnipotence is not God's ability to do the illogical or to go against himself. It's God's ability to do all his holy will. That's what omnipotence is. And secondly, right on the heels of this, is that he has willed that creation would reflect something of himself. Uh, that's to say that creation itself is imbued with logical norms that coincide with his knowledge, that coincide with his very being. To have one plus one equal three, uh, quite literally, is to make God out to be a liar uh, because that means that the numbers wouldn't line up with the things that they represent. And by the way, whoever asks the question about God making a rock so big that he cannot lift it, would have no clue of the difference in terms of the existence, 
between God and a rock. There is a, di- a, different, di- a whole different quality of a rock's existence than the quality of God's existence. In other words, put it this way, if what you do is you just say, well, a rock is dependent upon the creator, okay? The creator is independent from anything in terms of creation. He's independent from creation entirely. God's existence is not like a rock's existence. You need a cup because, you know, not only their brain will melt, but, you know, they'll start drooling and stuff like that. You got to catch it and, and whatnot. It happens all the time. But God's existence is not like a rock's existence. The rock needs the creator. The creator needs nothing. He's entirely independent, separate apart from his creation. Nothing exists like God exists. God's omnipotence is toward himself first. He'll never go against himself. He'll never deny himself. 2 Timothy 2. God does not lie. Titus chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 6. God cannot change his mind. Numbers chapter 23. He will never be or do anything contrary to his holy will. We can say that God is perfectly in control of himself. He's perfectly able to do everything that he intends to. God's omnipotence is directed towards himself. Secondly, God's omnipotence is directed towards his creation. When we think of this, we think of the entire universe and how God has not only created everything, uh, but he holds it all together. Hebrews 1 verse 3 uh, says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6, uh, Nehemiah prays. He says, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. Romans 1 verse 20 says that God's invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Think about this. Uh, According to Google, uh, Uncle Google says this, so it must be true. The universe is around 93 billion light years from end to end. That is the known universe. 93 billion light years from end to end. Now, the length of one light year I have here, again, from Uncle Google, is 5.8 trillion miles long. 5.8 trillion miles long. I I can't even grasp that, and that's okay because, well, the government can't either, so that's that's, that's all right. 5.8 trillion miles takes up one light year, and there's 93 billion of them, and God owns it all. He upholds Every speck of it. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that there is no maverick molecule in all of the universe. I think he's 100% right on that. His omnipotence is directed towards his creation. Number three, his omnipotence is directed towards all people. His omnipotence is directed towards all people. All of his creatures and all of their actions are preserved by God's providence so that to him nothing happens by mistake. There is no mistakes, really, cosmically, in the known universe. We can see this in many places in Scripture. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. Uh, Isaiah, uh, he's uh, impersonating uh, God. God is speaking to him. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will do it. In other words, what this means is that the nation of Persia would be raised up so that God can raise up Cyrus and have his people uh, leave their exile in Babylon. That's exactly what this, uh, this passage means. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The subtext of this is that if God can do this with king's hearts, uh, how much more can he do this with all of our hearts as well? He's certainly able to do this with commoners as well, and perhaps no event uh, shows God's omnipotence more than the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, says that the Lord Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why? So that sinners may be saved, so that they can be reconciled to their God. God's omnipotence is directed towards all people. Lastly, his omnipotence is directed towards his people. It's toward his people. It's directed towards his people. We can see that in our passage, Romans 1, verse 16 that the gospel, what is the power of God for salvation? First uh, Peter 1, verse 3 says that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By the way, that is a display of power such that, that humanity has not seen before or since. Uh, resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now imagine that, brothers and sisters, as you sit here, as you rise and, and, and you go throughout your entire week, you are being guarded, you're being kept by God's power. You're being kept by his power. His power protects us such that we're always kept safe from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Nothing can combat that power. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. As a matter of fact, all the powers of hell combined. All of the powers of hell, all the powers of the world, all the powers of the flesh, all the powers of the evil one are as nothing to him. They cannot prevent the saving power of the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, Paul uses the story of creation as an analogy to express the power of the gospel in the life of the one who's come to know and love the Savior. He says that God, who listened for Genesis 1 themes, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, it takes as much power to create an entire universe by God's spoken word as it does to create one Christian. It takes exactly the amount of the same quality of power of God to create an entire universe as it does to make you repent and love the Lord Jesus. And just as he keeps and upholds the universe, so too, so too he's going to keep and uphold us as well. His omnipotence is directed towards his people. We've seen thus far what God's omnipotence is, where it's directed. I'm going to answer the third question. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? Uh, the incommunicable attribute of God's omnipotence uh, means a lot for you. It's, uh, it, it's not just some sort of philosophic word. It's not some philosophic construct that only comes in handy when you read it in a book or something like that. It's something that you can stake your very life upon, uh, that God holds you in his omnipotent grip. He holds you steadfastly. It's a truth that will take you to your very last day, and literally it will take you beyond in confidence and assurance that he is for you. 
as we said earlier, that everything that he desires for you will be delivered no matter what the opposition may uh, arise against you or against him on that account. And the applications obviously are literally infinite. Uh, They're far too numerous for one sermon here. But firstly, what God's omnipotence means for you is that there is no sin that is beyond his ability to forgive. There is no sin that possesses a greater obstacle than the power of the gospel. Just think about that just for, for a moment. Imagine if there was a sin out there somewhere in the ether that the blood of Christ himself could not atone for. Just think of that for, for, for a moment. If this were the case, then sin would actually be more powerful than God. So there's nothing more powerful than him, and that means that the sinful uh, acts of the flesh are as nothing to the blood of Christ on the cross. Sin no more has power uh, over us because of, because of the blood of Christ on the cross. Acts 20 verse 28 says that God has obtained his church with his own blood. With his own blood. So we can also see this when God gives his name to Abraham in Genesis uh, chapter 17. Uh, remember that, uh, that phrase, I am God Almighty. Uh, walk before me and be blameless is what the Lord God uh, says. <clears throat> Well, the Hebrew phrase, some of you know this, El Shaddai is what God Almighty means. It literally means God the overpowerer, okay? God the destroyer is what El Shaddai means. The very next thing that he says then is, I will make my covenant with you. In other words, all of his power is directed towards his ability to make his covenant with us. Herman Bavink, a famous systematician, says this, about the giving of the name El Shaddai. He says, El Shaddai is the God who makes all the powers of nature subjects and subservient to his work of grace. It represents God's deity. His eternal power is no longer an object of dread, but as a source of well-being and comfort. God gives himself to his people. His invincible power is for them the guarantee of the fulfillment of his covenant promises. God's omnipotence means that there is no sin that's beyond his ability to forgive. Secondly, it also means that loving him is a demonstration of his power. Loving him is a demonstration of his power. And I say this because there is nothing in all creation that is harder to crack than the human heart. There is nothing harder in all of creation. Yes, you have diamonds and stuff like that. That pales in comparison to the human heart. There's nothing more difficult to do for another person such as to make them into a Christian. It literally takes the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the blessed, holy, undivided Trinity, to overcome the power of sin. So when this happens, we begin to love him. We begin to, to love him from, 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 from the heart. And we have from him, as 2 Corinthians 2 says, an aroma of Christ. That we, obviously, we can't generate for ourselves. It's, it's an aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. It's something that we are, is praiseworthy among those who are not saved. It's a fragrance of death. You can read 2 Corinthians 2, but the case is the exact same. It's an aroma of Christ. It's a demonstration of his power to overcome the gravity and the effectiveness of your sin upon a heart that's hard as a diamond to soften it, and to warm it over to the love of Christ. Loving him as a demonstration of his power, his power to seek as well as his power to save, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Lastly, his omnipotence means that you can have confidence in his will 
for you that it will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. His will for you will be accomplished. I'm not sure what that means for everybody here, head for head individually uh, in this life, but I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure I know what that means for the life to come. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what that means for the life to come. In other words, I don't, I don't know if that means that you're going to live a long and full life or that maybe tonight is your last night on this earth. I don't know that. But I do know from his word that whatever is in store for the people of God is what Paul calls in Titus chapter 2, a blessed hope, uh, the glorious appearing of the, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul calls it in 2 Timothy 4, a crown of righteousness. Uh, Revelation 19, a marriage supper. Uh, it's his will that all of his per- children be partakers of what he wants to accomplish for them Uh, they're surely going to be at the marriage supper. They will have that crown of life. It will be a blessed hope that we look forward to. One of the theologians said this. He says, I am more certain to rise from my grave than I am to rise from my bed. Uh, One hymn writer says this, hymn that we sing, goes, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Everything that he wills to accomplish for you will come to pass. This is God's omnipotence, and this is the God who you worship Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And Lord willing, with your new pastor coming into the pulpit here, he will direct you into God's omnipotence further and further. Brothers and sisters, this is the God who you worship. He's omnipotent. Because he's omnipotent, we can have confidence that he can and he will accomplish all of his purposes for you, for his will, for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do relish in your omnipotence. We love it and we love you because of it. And so we look to you and we have confidence that as we look heavenward that you care for us and that everything that you have planned for us will come to pass in this age and in the age to come, that we will have the crown of life, that we will be there at the marriage supper. You boost our confidence in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.